Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den tyrkisk-amerikanske økonom Darren Asimuglo. De fleste lærte nok Asimuglo at kende, ligesom jeg gjorde, da han sammen med James Robinson i 2012 udgav bogen Why Nations Fail. Det er en meget stor historie over de politiske og økonomiske institutioner i vores verden, hvor de gennemgår forskellige typer stalsdannelser, forskellige typer institutionelle udviklinger og forskellige typer af økonomiske indretninger. Og deres pointe er, at de stater, som bygger på det, som han kalder for inkluderende institutioner, det vil sige, de stater, hvis forretningsmodel, for nu udtryk det meget vulgært, bygger på, at borgerne bliver værdiskabende, at de bliver til vellykkede stater, fordi der er statslederne afhængige af borgerne for at kunne opretholde nationens velstand. De stater derimod, som bygger på naturressourcer, som bygger på rigdom, man kan hælde op af jorden, som bygger på noget, der er i forvejen, som man bare kan sælge videre, dem kalder han for ekstraktive stater, det vil sige stater, der sådan set bare lever af at udvinde værdi, som allerede er skabt. De stater er kendetegnet ved, at der er en relativt lille elite, som man kunne kalde for et oligarki, eller en politisk-økonomisk overklasse, som kan opretholde deres egen velstand, uden at behøve investere i den brede befolkning. På den måde lykkes det med det her relativt enkle greb, altså Muglow og Robinson, at skrive en helt institutionel økonomisk kulturhistorie, som samtidig også bliver en vejledning til, hvordan man skal forstå vores institutionelle udvikling i dag. Nu har altså Muglow sammen med kollegaen Simon Johnson udgivet bogen Power and Progress, Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, der sagtens kan blive en klassiker på samme måde som Why Nations Fail Blee. Det er en bog, som over 700 sider gennemgår teknologiens udvikling med et ganske bestemt fokus. Under hvilke betingelser, spørger forfatterne, kommer teknologien det store flertal til gode, og under hvilke betingelser får vi teknologier, der gør det muligt for en lille politisk-økonomisk overklasse at opretholde deres magt. Deres pointe er grundlæggende et opgør med den teknologioptimisme, som de mener hersker, hvor folk jubler over store iværksættere og store opfinder, nye teknologiske produkter, som kommer på markedet, nye teknologiske og digitale muligheder, som de synes er en fuldstændig blind tilgang til det. De fastholder, at man skal sikre, at teknologierne kommer flertallet til gode, og hvis ikke de gør det, så vil teknologierne accelerere modsætninger og uligheder i vores samfund. Og de viser i bogen, hvordan det har fundet sted over de seneste 2.000 år. Det store spørgsmål er selvfølgelig, hvordan skaber man politiske institutioner, sociale institutioner og organisering af demokratiet, som gør, at teknologien kommer flertallet til gode, og ikke bare bliver til en maskine for et lille mindretal til at opretholde deres magt. Der er ingen tvivl om, at det, der har inspireret bogen for Asimuglo og Johnson, det er synet af den digitale teknologi, udviklingen af tech-industrien, tech-giganterne, hvor folk de har klappet hele vejen hen til det punkt, hvor de pludselig kan se, at vi har fået nogle nye magthavere, som vi ikke har nogen som helst midler til at drage til regnskab. Det er klart, det er erkendelsen af den magt, som Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg og flere andre har fået, som har fået dem til at stille spørgsmålet, hvordan i alverden demokratiserer man teknologien? Hvordan omgås man den teknologiske udvikling på en måde, som sikrer, at det kommer flertallet til gavn? Og det er nemlig slet ikke sikkert, at det gør det. God fornøjelse.
Well, well, thank you for taking your time. You know, why Nations Fail have been very influential for us here. And it's, such a, it's a great normative distinction to analyze the world through with the inclusive and the extractive institutions. Yes. Um, but there's also in that book and all and in your new book, Power and Progress, there's a remarkable curiosity. And it seems that you take an interest in a lot of different kinds of knowledge from history to social sciences to sociology. Well, I see, I see it's the same for you from your bookshelf behind you there. <laughs> yeah. so I was wondering, how did you originally decide to become an academic? Well, you know, I mean, it's actually funny because I was interested in exactly the questions that are at the heart of why nations fail as a teenager. And I thought, I want to study these. And that's why I went into economics. And uh, soon thereafter, I realized that's not what economists did, but I like what economists did as well. So I stuck with it until I could then sort of delve into those issues myself later in my own research career after PhD. And there's also in your new book, Power and Progress, there's a very interesting section that we read thoroughly here in the newspaper because we love the power of ideas, or at least the thought of power of ideas. But there's a very interesting chapter on the power of ideas and the power of persuasion. And it's a very hopeful chapter, I, I, I think. How do you see the power of ideas in today's well, world? Well, you know, that's something that really evolved over time, you know, in some sense, uh, Many of the themes of power and progress go back to my interests even before I wrote Why Nations Fail with Jim Robinson. But some of them have evolved over time. And in fact, you know, if you look at Why Nations Fail, I stick by most of the ideas in that book. But one place where we haven't done justice is to think about norms and ideas in a systematic way as we should have done. And uh, and I realized that more generally, but especially in the context of innovation. I think both ideas, visions, and norms matter greatly. And part of the reason why you can see that as hopeful is because I believe it's very feasible to change how we use innovation because you can develop a different vision. You can have different norms about what scientists and you know leading researchers should prioritize. On the other hand, I also see that change to be very difficult because ideas are very sticky as well. But, you know, there's a lot of people here who would say, who would use climate change as an example and say, well, we definitely won the battle of ideas. And now you have, Absolutely. America is a special case, but in most other Western countries, you have leaders saying what George Herbert Walker Bush said 30 years ago, that this is an existential threat and we must change it. And we have corporate leaders saying it. So we feel that we won the battle of ideas. Absolutely, you have, and 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 that's true. But I, I actually, you know, I think climate change is super interesting because, first of all, it shows the hopeful side that you can win the battle of ideas, and when you do, things start changing a lot quickly. I mean, the the revolution in renewables is an outcome of that. On the other hand, you know, it took 35, 40 years for that to happen, even in Europe. The evidence, I think, about man-made climate change was very clear you know, as early as the 1970s or at the latest in 1980. And and it took, you know, more than three decades for that, you know, consensus to arise in Europe. And it hasn't emerged in the United States yet. So so it can take a very long time. And in the case of technology and AI, we don't have, I think, four decades. Do you think having studied, you know, thousand years of humans struggling with their problems and the threats to society, that climate change 
fundamentally differs from other threats that we've been confronted with? Actually, I don't know. I think there are some commonalities. And in some ways, actually, believe, you know, you're going to be surprised on this. I actually don't think climate change is the hardest problem we have. And there's a very good reason for that. You know, there are these two arguments that climate change is the hardest problem we have, which are that, A, you know, it's like behavioral economics biases. You know, we have a hard time understanding the future. I I don't agree with that. But second is it's like global externalities. We consume the carbon and or we, we we burn the fossil fuels and then the carbon affects the whole world. That's a very, very important thing. But there's one thing about climate change. We're all in the same boat. I don't think anybody really believes that, you know, Blue Origin or SpaceX are going to be able to colonize other planets. So if we destroy this planet, we're all doomed. So that is why people in Europe who are very well off, I think, have become so passionate. You know, if you think about it, you know, people in Sweden or Denmark, the youth in Sweden or Denmark, they're the last ones who are going to suffer the consequences of uncontrolled climate change, but they will suffer. So we're all in the same boat. On the other hand, there are many other problems which are much more about creating poverty or misery with for some group, but benefiting others. And those are hurting harder problems. And I think the reason why AI, I think, is a very hard problem is because it is enriching and empowering a small group of people who are currently already powerful. So in some sense, I don't know that climate change is a harder problem than redirecting AI. To go to your new book, there's obviously a continuity from Why Nations Fail to your new book. And I should say that this is written with another author. Uh, but but I think there's also a bit of shift in emphasis. That this Absolutely, is a book, 100%. This is a book that's more critical of the distribution of power and wealth in society, and it's it's looking more critical at technology in itself. What changed your analysis and your view over the decade that separated the two books? Well, my analysis would be, I mean, again, there are different styles of writing, depending on what we thought the audience knew and cared about. But I would say that in Why Nations Fail, we cared a lot about distribution of power. That's what all that whole discussion of extractive institutions and elites was all about distribution of power. And in fact, power was in the subtitle of that book. What we failed to do in that book are, first of all, take issues of norms and ideas as seriously as they should have been. And second, we did not think enough about the distributional effects of new technologies. So a uh, natural but perhaps slightly superficial reading of Why Nations Fail would say the worst thing you can do is block a new technology. And if you allow that new technology to progress, things are generally going to be good. And that turns out to be too naive because the same elites who control existing technologies and existing means of production can also be in charge of implementing and choosing the direction of new technologies. So it's very important to be as critical about these new technologies. And in some sense, I think our accounts in Why Nations Fail were colored by the fact that, you know, the Industrial Revolution was spearheaded by new technologies that could not be or were not monopolized by existing elites. 
So so there was this sort of uh, more optimistic take that new technologies are generally going to pry open existing hierarchies. And it turns out that was naive, yes. Well, was that the, I mean, obviously for many here, it was how we saw uh, the digital technology develop yeah. or all, all, all the companies that changed exactly. our view on technology. Absolutely. Was that the so, same view? Know, Yeah, I mean, just just with a little anecdote, I think you know, in two thousand and eight, like many others in in academia and and in the public intellectual life, if you had asked me what is the sector that's most dangerous for the United States, I would have said Wall Street and finance. And if you asked me what is the sector that epitomizes our capabilities and uh, you know future possibilities best, and I would have said tech. And now, you know, fifteen years after that. I think tech is more dangerous than Wall Street has ever been. And one great thing about the book, it's really, uh, it's a pleasure to read it because you get so many hist- historical narratives also, is that you 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 show us examples of how technology has benefited the common good or has, has benefited the majority in some instances and in other instances where it definitely hasn't benefited. Uh, if you should give us one historical example of, of technology when it didn't benefit the majority what would that be i mean there are so many i don't know which ones to choose but if i were to choose one that is clearly very clearly not benefiting workers i would go with the cotton gin which enabled uh, you know cotton production to spread to the south of the united states where the cotton varieties that could be grown were very different and couldn't be cleaned exist with existing gins and turned the southern economy into the powerhouse of the entire world the largest exporter of cotton, which then fueled the whole industrial revolution. Tremendous fortunes were made, but the workers who produced cotton, which were the black enslaved workers, did not benefit, were in fact suffering even more under cotton plantations because working hours got longer, conditions got harsher, coercion become more endemic. If I were giving you an example of even broader significance, I would give the windmills in the Middle Ages where we see the production of many tasks completely revolutionized, but living standards of the population at large, except the very small elite, did not improve at all. You know, some would, would say, well, there's a, like a Kuznets curve for technology as well, that it's just in the beginning that it creates inequality, but then in the long run, it will benefit the majority. But that's not your view. That's not my view. First of all, uh, we in the book, we reject all sorts of automatic stories, meaning automatically everything will work out, automatically wages will increase, automatically inequality will decline. And I think it depends really on societal reactions, new institutions, the direction of technology, which we choose after the initial advances. And uh, we see that in the UK, it took 100 years for the early British Industrial Revolution to start benefiting anybody. And even then, the early stages did not reduce inequality. Inequality continued to increase from the middle of the 19th century until the last quarter. And uh, and there was nothing automatic about it. It was a complete reorganization of society, new institutions, trade unions, democracy, new direction of technology. And today, you know, we are probably, depending on where you put the beginning, but we are about 60 years into the digital revolution. And digital technologies are still boosting inequality hugely. And I don't see an end to it until, again, we choose a completely different set of institutions and there's nothing automatic about these institutions. 
You know, I think some today would would, would say that well, we have a, a kind of dominant vision now that tech has become damaging to our societies. This is very different from 2008 when Obama was elected and and from the Arabian Spring when, when, when we thought that this would galvanize protests all around the world. But now we have even in the U.S. we have bipartisan consensus that tech is is damaging. You know, we have the European Union taking up the mantle. But but there's also the sense here, I think, that these companies have become too large for us. Just look I, at this standoff between Facebook and Australia. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, part of the reason why I am hopeful, and I was hopeful when I wrote, when I started writing this book with Simon, is because I do recognize that there are many opportunities for changing things and that the policy atmosphere can change very quickly. So indeed, today there is much greater discontent with Silicon Valley and uh, the big tech companies than there was five years ago. That being said, I still don't think that there is a workable plan of reigning in the power of tech. And on very, very important points, U.S. lawmakers are still very pro-tech. So I think we are still at the beginning of the journey. We'll see, for example, uh, in the recent case of U.S. DOJ against Google, whether anything will change. But, you know, there was, it is clear, the evidence is absolutely very transparently loud that big tech companies are acquiring rivals, and this is bad for innovation. There are so many papers that show this, but still the courts allowed Microsoft's big merger with acquisition uh, uh, blizzard. So uh, activation blizzard, sorry. And uh, so, so it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Now, whether US versus Google case will be a turning point, I don't know. But yes, indeed, I think I do believe that we do need to break up the big tech companies precisely because they have become so socially and politically powerful. I think I think when I read your book, I think you must agree with the, the Biden administration on a lot of key issues, or at least appreciate the, the agenda of the, the Biden administration. I absolutely do. I think they are, in some ways, very, very much a big, big, big break with Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump. And I appreciate it. On the other hand, you know, my job is to be critical as well. They do not have a roadmap of what they want from tech. So they are pro-worker. They recognize U.S. leadership in tech depends on more advanced information. That's the essence of the CHIPS Act. They recognize that you need to shore up U.S. supply chains. That's, again, part of the CHIPS Act and the IRA. They are cognizant of the issue of the climate change, and they are worried about the power of big tech, but they don't have a vision of how you change the direction of technology, what it is that we want from new technology. I think that's what's lacking. Sometimes, and you know a lot more than that about that than, than I do, but looking at it from abroad, I think there's a conflict in the in this administration. That on the one hand, they want to compete with China. And when you compete with China, you want to have big giants that are as powerful as the Chinese giants. And on the other hand, you want to use industrial policy to enhance the workers and make a, a green transition. Do you see a conflict here between the industrial policies of the Biden administration as a kind of security apparatus confronting China 
and then as trying to create social change in America? No, I do not see that. I, in fact, I think this is one of the areas where the tech industry really creates most amount of you know damage by arguing that the only way we can compete against China is to allow the tech industry here to have a carte blanche in whatever they do. And I think that's absolutely incorrect. First of all, China is much better than the U.S. in regulating tech right now. I don't agree with their methods and I don't agree with their objectives, but they show they can regulate tech, they can regulate AI. So uh, it is the U.S. that is the unregulated cowboy capitalism here, not China. Second, I think if we want the more productivity enhancing advances, we really need to steer digital technologies in a more pro-worker direction. That would help the U.S. competitiveness in the medium run, not harm it. Third, I think the U.S. is ahead of China in many sectors, in many sub-areas of technology, and that gives it an elbow room in setting regulation. So if we regulate, for example, AI well, that will potentially impact what Chinese, what the Chinese do as well. So I think we have, in the same way that in climate change, uh, when one country makes advances in steering technology more in a clean direction, I think in tech as well, if one country makes advances in finding ways of increasing worker productivity with new digital technologies, this will actually uh, spread to other countries as well. The big divide between the U.S. and China will always be on surveillance. Uh, U.S. still has not made up its mind about how it views the use of AI for surveillance, and the Chinese are very much in on surveillance. So that's going to be a big difference, and I think that you have to take that into account. But generally, I I don't think there is a big conflict between U.S.-China race in AI and U.S. correctly and properly regulating AI. Here in Europe, we... <laughs> We have the blessing and the curse of not having tech giants. So I think you put it exactly right. I, I put, I say exactly the same thing. Europe is unlucky not to have Silicon Valley, but on the other hand, it is also lucky in can play a, a regulatory leadership in that. So we were celebrating the GDPR regulation, yes. and this was kind of taking the fight to the next level. Yes. And and I think a few years later, now the experience is that this just shows how complex this this battle is that we have lawyers making a lot of money on it, but it's unclear how successful it has been. 100% right. You are 100% right again. I think Europe was on the money, did it at the right time with the right values, with the right objectives. GDPR is something we should be proud of, and it has completely backfired and it has not created any good value for us. So, And you are absolutely right also about the complexity, but the, the lesson to draw from this is that what we want is much more dynamic and flexible policy. I think in an ideal world, what would have happened is that European lawmakers would have introduced GDPR in exactly the way that they did, because I think sitting with them at that table in the late 2010s, I would not probably have had many different ideas. Perhaps I could have been more cautious on some aspects, but I could see myself going along with them. But what they should have realized is that, okay, in one year's time, we're going to come back and we're going to reevaluate this policy and we're going to change some parts of it. So I think that's what's needed. When when you're dealing with such a complex and rapidly changing technology, you anticipate that companies are going to find workarounds uh, around their regulations 
And so you want to update your regulations very dynamically, very adaptively. Another point where I think your book is aligned with the with the Biden administration is when it comes to to workers' voice. It's very mm-hmm. important in the book that that workers should have bargaining power. And again, I have a lot of sympathy with the Biden administration incentivizing people to unionize. And he is probably the most pro-labor American exactly. president for, for half a century. But I do here feel that he's really like an old man with a sword from an old battle in a whole new world, that this is not and Both of those things you said are again correct, Rune. You're again exactly on the money. So it is absolutely critical to have labor voice. And by labor voice, I don't just mean bargaining. That's important. Of course, workers need to get a fair share of the productivity gains. But even more importantly, you need to have worker voice about the direction of technology, how we're going to structure work. And, you know, the tragedy, for example, was when U.S. senators wanted to think about AI, they invited the top executives of the top five companies, no workers, no worker perspective was there. So I think that is that is tragic. But I'm also quite realistic that the current labor organizations in the United, in the United States are not up to the task. Workers have become weaker and weaker. Deindustrialization and deunionization have been very strong. And moreover, the current union leadership in the United States is not seeing the importance of AI, is not seeing the uh, the priority of focusing on that as the most important issue. So, so we need new labor organizations or new ways, new leadership in some of the organizations to find new coalitions in order to do that. And I don't know where that's going to come from. I mean, you know, Scandinavia, uh, the Nordic countries, including Finland, are in a much better position here because there is a tradition of corporatist bargains, sectoral bargaining. Unions are still strong. Unions are actually very much involved in thinking about the work life of workers in a holistic manner and, you know, surveying, understanding technology, understanding or investigating its consequences on workers. But I also recognize, uh, you know, that one of the most futile things in the United States is to say, look at Denmark, we should be like Denmark. No, I mean, US can never be like Denmark. It's just like, you know, that's not the way it's going to work. So the US has to find a path of representing knowledgeable expert labor voice on issues of technology. When I was reading your book this summer, I was following the writer's strike in Hollywood at the same time. And I was thinking on the one hand, well, these are white collar workers. They benefited from the digital revolution. They're the privileged class. I don't want to feel sorry for them. On the other hand, they might be the ones with the political and cultural capital to lead this battle. And this may be a new kind of strike that's very interesting. Absolutely, 100%. Again, you are right, Rune. So I would say, first of all, the WGA deserves a lot of credit for recognizing AI's threat for work and thinking about that in a quite a sophisticated way and making that a key topic in their strike. And indeed, today, you need groups, groups of workers that have bargaining power and Hollywood directors screenwriters and actors, guilds are the most important example of this. They can bring the whole country to a standstill. So this is a very, very important battle. If even the WGA cannot prevail, then there is very little hope for American workers in general. But let me be critical of the WGA as well. And I think that's very important. They did half of the task, but the first half is not enough. So the second half is they needed not they did they 
highlighted the importance of AI, the threats of AI, the issues that are going to surround creative uh, workers in the future. But you know what they missed? What's the alternative path? So if labor's position is, oh, we don't like these new technologies, we're going to block them, that the same thing that happened to the Luddites will happen to them. They'll be sidelined because there is no possibility in anywhere, and not least in the United States, that we're going to stay stationary. So what labor needs to do, and that's why I'm saying that labor leadership is now completely absent, what labor needs to do is to articulate an alternative path where AI can be used in a way that's more pro-worker. You know, we don't use that term in power and progress. Perhaps we should have. It's a term that I've used after the book came out or after the book was finished. You know, I say a pro-worker direction of AI, and I try to explain why that's quite feasible. And that's what WGA should do. So the WGA should read our book. <laughs> so they should understand this vision of technology. <laughs> they should understand this vision of technology. They should articulate it, and they should try to explain why this would be ultimately in the interests of the businesses as well, so that you can try to find a path around this new vision. You know, some would say that that, are, that we're on the hot left, someone from the Bernie Sanders camp, uh, they, they would say that they, that's the basic question of society is the distribution of uh, wealth and, and, and income. And in the end of the book, you, you, you do uh, recommend uh, a wealth tax and a capital gains tax. You're also critical of the, of the minimum wage, but some would say, well, the economic battle is the primary battleground, and then we can take on technology. Well, then I, 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 I sympathize with some of the things that Bernie Sanders says, but I am very, very different in my views. And in particular, my the way that I would be very critical of them is exactly that they see the big battle as one of division of surplus, whereas I see the big battle as the joint creation of the right type of surplus and its division. So if you ignore the creation of surplus, then this makes you into a zero-sum world. And in a zero-sum world, labor is always going to lose. So ultimately, I think Bernie Sanders' agenda is not going to be pro-worker. Whereas my reading of the Nordic path in Denmark, in Sweden, is that labor and the social democratic parties or the workers' parties found a path of surplus creation and division a way of articulating to say we can make these countries still competitive, these industries still competitive and pay high wages. You know, you need it in the Nordic countries in the beginning of the 20th century. Today, you need that new path to be one of this is how we can use digital technologies and AI to make workers more productive, firms more profitable, and at the same time, create a fair division of the surplus. Yeah, but it's interesting because this Danish model or Scandinavian model is being celebrated a lot abroad from people looking looking at Denmark. Yeah. But here it has relatively low legitimacy. Well, no. Denmark in Den Denmark has moved away from it. If you look at Sweden, Finland, and Norway, it is still persisting. And I think there are different industry and different other pressures in Denmark. But, you know, in Denmark, unions have become weaker. Flex labor market, you know, some American practices have spread. But if you look at, you know, the way that workers are treated, it's still very, very advantageous relative to most other countries, you know, uh, comparable to Germany and perhaps a little bit less than in Sweden or Norway. But but workers still have a lot of rights and a lot of voice in in, in Denmark. When you wrote this, I want to return to, to the to the book for the last part here. 
because it's such a it's such a great read. When you started studying for this book or making the 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 entire research that must have taken you 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 years, what surprised you the most during the work with this book? Hard to say because you know I mean essentially a lot of the book draws from academic work that I did starting in you know 2009 2010. So the a lot of the empirical patterns and a lot of the uh, technological and worker side ideas I knew already. Now it is true there were some parts of it that I didn't know. Like for example, you know I had a superficial understanding of what was going on in medieval Europe, but sort of getting more into the details that was enriching. But I think the part that crystallized in my mind that wasn't as clear, say, five years ago, is all the sort of the social power or the persuasion power of the tech industry. So that's the part that, you know, was sort of up in the air for me, and it really became much crystallized. And I, I'm surprised in some sense that I should have, have been powerful the tech industry became in the United States, partly because they've sold their vision. And, and it's it's an interesting point in the book that that how you sell your vision that it's not just to bring the best ideas into the marketplace. It's not just about that. It's also about where you bring them from and what's the status of delivering them. Yes. So lo looking back, how was it possible for them to establish this dominant vision? Well, I think that's partly a set of series of accidents. So, for instance, I think. The way that digital technologies came out of a uh, sort of a somewhat rebellious culture was very important, but it was not a culture that rejected capitalism or the market system. It was just rebellious against existing practices. And so that really fit very well with the deregulation age. So that was a confluence of factors. But I, I actually also think the uh, the vision of machine intelligence, which we put a lot of emphasis on, really is an excellent example of why some ideas, just by their nature, have a catchy structure. So they just appear plausible, they appear interesting in a way that, you know, if I told you, you know, many people did, sure. uh, you know, the most interesting thing about machines is they should be useful to people. That doesn't have the same cachet as saying, oh, machines are going to become intelligent, and that's how we should think about the world. That becomes a much more powerful and captivating vision. And I think all of these things came together to make Silicon Valley so powerful. It was the hotbed of freedom, hotbed of capitalism, hotbed of entrepreneurship, and it had a great story to peddle. And of course, it was brilliantly successful. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I am critical of the Silicon Valley, but I'm also extremely cognizant that today, if it wasn't for Silicon Valley, the United States would not be as rich and as dynamic. So the question is, we don't want to reject that. We want the dynamism, risk-taking, innovativeness of Silicon Valley, but redirected a little bit towards more pro-worker, pro-human functions. So I have just one last question for you, which again draws on your enormous historical perspective, because Looking at the American election from, from here in Europe, we think there's a lot at, at stake. And it's almost like the last three elections have been, this is do or die for American democracy. And, you know, it can't be true every time. Yes. Uh, and and, uh, and I, I was wondering, if you look at it through, through history, 
is this moment in American history as unique as it seems? Or, no, it's or... not. Absolutely not. But then again, if you look at history, you see many points in which democracy comes close to dying or sometimes dies. You know, nobody foresaw in ancient Greece uh, during the time of Aristotle that, you know, they were entering the last phase of Athenian democracy. So, yes, we've been here before. Sometimes we've bounced back from it, sometimes not. But I'm not as worried today as I was, say, in 2016. First of all, because I'm hoping that Donald Trump will not win. And second, in 2016, I wasn't sure that U.S. civil society would rise up against Trump, and they did. I wrote in 2016, or was published January of 2017, uh, an article in Foreign Policy called We Are the Last Defense, arguing that there there was need for civil society media mobilization against Donald Trump, otherwise his agenda would be hugely disruptive and destructive for the United States. And, And by and large, that mobilization did take place. But here is my concern. I think the U.S. left, including Biden, have not understood and internalized the grief and grievances of Trump voters. I think very few people in the left have shown the following wisdom of saying, we reject Trump, we think he's a liar, we think he's a crook, he's horrible. But we recognize that his voters and his supporters have valid grievances and we have to work with them. And until they do that in a credible manner, even if Trump goes, the next one will come. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Ruin. Thanks a lot. It was really uh, my pleasure. And uh, and thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Det her var min samtale med Darren Asamuglo. Den bog, som vi taler om, hedder Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle over Technology and Prosperity, som udkommet her i sommer. Den anden bog, som vi refererer flittigt til, er Why Nations Fail fra 2012, som han skrev sammen med James A. Robinson. Den her samtale var redigeret og produceret af vores hjælper og kammerat, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal jeg tale med en af mine helt store helte, den tyrkiske romanforfatter Orhan Pamuk som over de seneste 40 år har skrevet nogle helt fantastiske politiske, civilisationshistoriske romaner, som har givet os en helt enestående forståelse af sammenstødet mellem modernitet og tradition, mellem øst og vest, mellem liberale overklasser og brede underklasser i Tyrkiet og sådan set også i resten af verden. Jeg håber, I vil lytte med i næste uge, hvor jeg taler med Pamuk om hans helt nye roman på 700 sider, som jeg godt tør love nu, bliver et hovedværk i hans forfatterskab.